Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Lewis Cleland and Clark Burrow. As we're looking to expand on the nature of the podcast content, we are joined yet again by another very special guest. So, what's in store for us today? This week on the podcast, we're delighted to welcome Shirley Gray onto the show. Shirley is a senior lecturer in physical education at Edinburgh University. She has carried out and supported others through many research projects, such as teaching personal social responsibility, digital health, equality, and curriculum development. We're delighted to have Shirley on to talk through these models tonight. We hope others listening can test the strategies Shirley discusses and take action points back to their schools to positively influence curriculum development and, of course, teaching and learning. We are both really looking forward to it, so I think it's about time we get Shirley onto the show. Right, good evening, Shirley. How are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, Clark, how are you? Yeah, well, good. Thanks for um, joining us to, tonight to share your uh, experience and research on health and wellbeing in the PE context. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to pleasure. be here. A bit surprised to be here, but happy to be here. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, we're looking forward to it. So we'll get started then. Can you tell us and the listeners, uh, before we get right into um, a little more background information on your career to date? I know you're a, a lecturer at um, University of Edinburgh, but can you tell us a wee bit about how, how you got there? Sure, well, so I'm currently a senior lecturer at Edinburgh, but I started off um, as a PE teacher, so I did my four-year degree at Murray House. So I haven't moved very far, <laughs> you'll soon learn. Um, <laughs> I, so I graduated and went straight into schools teaching. Didn't teach for particularly long in schools, three or four years, I think. Um, but then what happened was I was on a series of short-term contracts and then I received a phone call from one of my old university lecturers. And he said, um, there's a job coming up here at the university. Uh, it's a three-year contract. Um, it's a part-time teaching fellow, so it was mostly practical teaching I'd be doing. And... Uh, some hockey development work so I was a hockey part-time hockey development officer and then on top of that I got a chance to do a master's and really the thing that sold it to me was that it was a three-year contract and I hadn't really had anything beyond a one-year contract to that point and you know I had bills to pay and <laughs> had to find money somewhere so I said yes and applied for it and I got it and actually I'm really glad that I did it was a good move for me I really enjoyed it um, didn't look back really uh, so that was a three-year contract um, and then after three years a lecturing job came up and the difference between the lecturing job and the teaching fellow job that I was doing was really there was no hockey development work so at that point I was the East District Hockey Development Officer and uh, so that would be taken away and that would be replaced by research which was kind of what I was doing anyway because of my master's so again I went for that job, didn't think I would get it because I didn't have that much experience, didn't have my PhD at this point, but got the job. Um, and after sort of some consultation with some other teachers and some colleagues, I was able to, um, for that first year as a lecturer, I actually went back into schools and taught for a year, two days a week. So I did a job swap with a teacher at a school in West Lothian, she came and covered my classes and I went back into schools and covered her classes. So I went back into school for a few years just to, I guess, for my own credibility. It had been out of school for three years. I wanted to make sure I could still do it and really enjoyed doing it and, and it brought a lot of value to what I was doing. So that was me in a, in a lecturing position, did that for a few years, did my PhD, um, finished my PhD 2010, I think. And then not long after that, I actually moved to Canada for two years and got a job uh, as more of a sort of volunteer type job. I taught at the University of McGill for two years. So I worked with PE students there, which was really interesting. So bear Fantastic. in mind, I've gone from a school in Scotland to Murray House, back to schools in Scotland, back to Murray House. You know, I, I hadn't had a wide range of experience. So to mm. have two years in Canada was really good for me just to sort of see culturally how PE was the same or different and to work with different colleagues and to do research in a different context. Um, so I came back in about 2013, 14 from Canada and 
my job changed quite a lot. So up until that point, I was doing lots of pedagogy stuff, lots of practical stuff. But because I became more and more interested in research, my job sort of shifted that way as well. So I began to teach mostly on the research courses uh, at Murray House. I do, I do a bit on the skill acquisition, motor learning side of things. But I teach on the research uh, pro courses and I supervise at PhD and master's level. Um, and I kind of run the PE research group at the university and I lead sort of the fourth year research course for the undergraduate uh, students. So that my job ch changed quite a bit in the last say, four or five years. And then I got promoted to senior lecturer. So again, it's you know part of my role is really to drive the research side of things and, and lead there, which is really where I'm currently at the moment. So again, as I said, I teach the research and the research courses. I lead the PE research group. I co-convene the Scottish PE research group, and um, I, I work with researchers and teachers in Scotland and, and actually in the states and Australia and various other places as well. So. Yeah, I've, I've travelled a little bit, uh, not, not physically, <laughs> except for to Canada, but my job's shifted quite a bit, which is nice, you know, not not been doing the same thing for the past 20 odd years, it's, it's changed quite a bit, even though I'm in the same place, my job itself yeah. has actually changed quite a bit, so. It's good to have that variety, it sounds as if you enjoy what you do as well, so yeah, what did yeah. you, what was your master's um, on, then? what was your area of focus for your study? So similar to my PhD, I um, my master's, I was looking at games teaching. So I come from a games background, and but I was very much interested in how do we make games accessible to everybody? Because I kind of felt that when we focus on teaching skills in games, we're kind of excluding a lot of abilities. So a lot of children who, are, who have strengths in other areas, other than sort of being able to dribble or put spin on the ball or, you know, hit the ball hard. So I looked at decision making and looked at more of the cognitive side of, of games teaching and um, I was interested in the transfer of decision making from a master's. So I looked at the transfer. So if I, if I was to teach a block of, say, hockey and focus really only on the, the knowledge and the tactics and the decision making, would that transfer to hockey? Sorry, would that transfer to football? Would it transfer to um, basketball? So things like keeping possession, creating width, creating depth. 2v1s, creating space, counter-attacks, defensive shapes, that kind of thing. Would that transfer to other similar team sports? And why would it? So what is it that transfers? And kind of the, the hypothesis, if you like, was that there's, there's a sort of type of knowledge that transfers. And uh, one of the tests of that type of knowledge was I looked to see whether it would transfer from, say, hockey to rugby. So hockey and football and basketball are very similar in, in, in shape. So you, you defend your territory, you, you know, you, you attack the, um, the opposition's territory by passing the ball, keeping possession, so on. And in rugby, you do that, but, you know, you're all on one side of the ball and the ball doesn't go forward and, you know, you have to carry the ball over the line. So it's quite different in many ways. But I was interested to see whether or not some of the generic tactics and knowledge in games like football and hockey might also transfer to rugby um, and I found that it did but what was more interesting for me was I found that it opened the game up to not just the most skillful in the class it opened the it opened the game up to kids who could think it opened the game up to kids who could problem solve it opened the game up to kids who could lead and take leadership roles and I really enjoyed that aspect of of that approach so that was my master's degree and my PhD actually followed on from that as well yeah, I think the, I think the, the the life skills as well of problem solving and communication, uh, and sort of leadership that you, that you mentioned are more valuable as well to teach them, isn't it? For yeah, absolutely, life. absolutely. And it sort of shaped my um my my vision or my philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Now it's you know I think I think P is brilliant. Obviously, it's been my whole life for a long you know since I want to be a P teacher since probably about secondary school sometime. And I want it to be a subject that's accessible to everybody, not just the sort of model performers, if you like. Yeah. And doing my master's and my PhD kind of opened my eyes a bit in terms of how we can achieve that and how we can do that. Yeah, I think you made a good point. Oh, sorry, Lars. So I'm just, I'm just curious to find out. See, you said you were, you, you were teaching, was it three years before you went into the uni or was it four? Um, about three and a half, actually, something like that, yeah. 
how how did you find that just going from such a short period after graduating to teaching and then straight as a teaching fellow like what how did you find that um at, at the time probably quite nerve-wracking but actually really good for me because it made me really be on my game I had to mm-hmm. be on my game I had to be I had to know my stuff I had to be four or five steps ahead of the students I had to have all the answers to all the questions. Um, And I guess it's quite interesting because I taught on everything when I first started. And so I know know students from 20 years ago better than I know my students now because I don't teach as much. And a lot of them will probably tell you that I was quite serious. Yeah. (laughs) And... um, Took my took my role very seriously. Took my probably not that approachable because everything was very serious because I felt mm-hmm. that I had to prove myself. And yeah. so whilst I missed out in some aspects of the job in terms of being more relaxed and enjoying it and developing sort of positive relationships, I really learned my trade. So it put me under a lot of pressure to be good at what I was doing because not only did my students have their eyes on me and making sure I was doing what you know the right thing. But there were lots of more experienced teachers from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. I suspect, saying, well, who's this person coming in to do this work? Yeah. What does she know? Um, but the difference as well between working in university and school is what we have that you don't have is we have space to plan, prepare, to learn, to read. You know, students are not in class nine to five, nine to five Monday to Friday, right? They're in class. Your contact time with them is a lot less the opportunities you have to prepare and think about what you're doing is a lot more. And so it's, it's more teed up, I think for your own professional learning Mm -hmm. because it's pressured in some ways, but compared to teaching in a school, it's not as pressured in other ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's like, you really need to practice what you preach then, don't you? If you're trying to get the students to um, install really good habits especially with things like their lesson planning block planning evaluating lessons and all that kind of stuff and like you said it would really I suppose really enhance your content knowledge about what it is you're teaching because you need to ultimately know yeah. all that stuff to teach absolutely. teachers I suppose absolutely uh, definitely no so as I say it was hard um I worked long long hours um and especially when I was also a hockey development officer because most of the hockey development or other than festivals and tournaments which happened at weekends a lot of the work you do there was in evenings because you're working with volunteers. So I was working with my students all day and then I was working with um, hockey coaches and parents and, and children, you know, most evenings as well. So, yeah, it was quite hard. But as I say, it was a really good foundation for me. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't change it. Brilliant. Yeah, I think, in it, I think in any leadership position, I think there's that expectancy, isn't there, that you know what you're doing and can be quite... Uh, nerve-wracking as you say and obviously you need to back up with your, your knowledge but it's trying yeah. to strike that balance isn't it between being yeah. enjoying it and taking yeah. yourself serious and I think that's the difference between me then compared to me now so me then I would have had all the answers and I you know and what what I was teaching was what I wanted the students to learn whereas now I'm a bit more relaxed I'm a bit more open and I'm actually saying to students you tell me what you know you're out in placement, you're out working in t- with teachers and schools and young people. What are you learning? And so I'm definitely opening it more up to uh, draw from their learning and their experience because that's really valuable. And also it's, it's valuable f- for them, but it's also really valuable for me as well. Yeah. And I wouldn't have done that 20 years ago. I think that's a, a very, very good point there because I can see that. And, and I know what you're speaking about is different from me teaching as a class teacher, but seeing regards to like teaching for example my national five class during like my probation year I would have my lesson plan to go in and say we're speaking about the impact on performance of for example confidence I would just have like that one concrete example that I know in my head that's what I want to teach them without going away from that because I was like I could not compute if they had to keep firing loads of different ideas at me and trying to think on the spot but it's I think I've learned a bit to do that a little bit more now is get loads of different and just have that kind of discussion about it and I think that's quite a, a good point yeah. that you made there. Yeah. Um, no, Malcolm Thorburn writes a lot. Well, he, in the past, when he wrote about teaching higher, he wrote a lot about that. And he talked to a lot of teachers with various levels of experience. And some of the more experienced teachers are those who were a bit more relaxed and who were able to be flexible and adapt and listen to what their 
learners were saying and actually draw from that as content for their lessons and that just yeah. made it a bit more meaningful for them as well so yeah definitely so surely then as a senior lecturer uh, in physical education I suppose it'd be good to know why you believe PE has such an important role to play in the social uh, slash emotional development of our young people yeah no that's a good question um I suppose I'll start by saying I think all teachers have a really important role to play here um, it's not just PE I think that it should be a whole school um, it should be a, a whole school approach yep. and but within that so there should be sort of policy and culture and ethos around what that means within a school but then I suppose as well departments and teachers have to take responsibility for what that means in their own context as well and I think it has to be whole school really um, but I also think that PE has a really unique role um, to play in terms of promoting social and emotional learning and development. Uh, PE, for me, it's inherently, so, so both learning in PE and performing in PE, they're inherently social and they're inherently emotional and they're inherently cognitive. So you can't escape these things when you're learning and performing. You know, you have to listen and respond to others um, you will be successful, you will be unsuccessful, and that will elicit some emotional responses. You have to think about what you're doing. You have to think about what problems you're solving. So I don't think you can escape it in PE. But the thing that's also unique about PE is it's it's embodied. So you're doing these things, but your body is involved in it. Um, and your body is there to support, enhance your learning, which is social emotional and cognitive and that doesn't really happen in other subjects so i think p has a really critical role to play here and can be really really positive because when you bring your body into the learning experience that can actually really enhance learning um, in all of these domains but there's a flip side to that as well so by your body being implicated in your learning here it's also very public and that doesn't sit comfortably with some young people obviously um, so whilst PE is a super happy place for loads of kids, that kind of public nature of it and moving your body and showing your body and not being able to hide like you can in a maths lesson, I think can actually have some quite detrimental consequences for some children. And so, you know, PE teachers and PE as a profession, we have a kind of duty of care here to these young people so that it's not a damaging experience, so that it's not a negative experience because not only might these negative experiences around bodies and movements and public displays um, impact their learning in PE, but it could actually impact their whole school experience. Um, it could even impact them out of school and into adulthood. You know, we hear stories about people who struggle with movement and their bodies because of negative experiences they've had in PE. So I think we have a, a, a really sort of serious role to play in making sure that doesn't happen. Um, and so that's why I think, yeah, PE has a particularly important and unique role in supporting the health and well-being of, of young people. Yeah, definitely. Have you been involved in any curriculum development then to help best meet the needs of um, young people who may have uh, negative experiences and trying to maybe turn that around? Yeah, well, so most of the stuff that I've done is probably not so much focused on the curriculum, but more focused on teachers and pedagogy and young people's experiences um, I think that just to, to look at the curriculum is maybe a wee bit too simplistic <coughs> and that multiple factors will influence health, the health and well-being of, of pupils um, so we have to yes we have to look at the curriculum and, and you know the activities and the way they're organized and planned but we have to look at ourselves as well so and we have to look at our learners. So who are our learners? What are their experiences? Where are they from? What are their needs? Um, how is what we're doing affecting them? And so we have to think about what we're doing. And I think that a lot of the work that I do encourages teachers to explore who they are as teachers. What do they believe teaching PE is about? Um, what do they do to try to support young people's health and well-being? And what could they do better? Um, you know maybe even look at what are the things that they're doing that might actually be negative and that's quite hard for teachers to do because it you know who likes to be told that what they're doing is wrong but a lot of the teachers that choose to work with me are really keen to improve and so they're quite prepared to um, 
interrogate their kind of strengths and their weaknesses, which is really important, I think. Um, so, you know, the teachers that I work with who have tried to improve their teaching around health and well-being, yeah, I think they start with themselves and just work it out what is it that they are doing and what could they be doing better. So I think the curriculum is important and I think actually we've got quite a good curriculum um, in Scotland, Curriculum for Excellence P within Health and Wellbeing. It's attempting to be holistic, it's attempt, attempting to cater for learning within the social, emotional, mental domains. Um, I think it does it more so and I think it does a better job sort of up to level three, two, three. I think that it gets a bit performance focused, the curriculum in level four. And I totally understand why. And I, I can see that it, it's kind of leading towards the national qualifications a little bit when it's focusing more on performance and social and emotional and mental skills for performance rather than for well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess not every pupil does the national, do, you know, they don't all do the national qualifications. So for those who national qualifications are less relevant, what 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 does PE do for them if it's a bit more focused on performance? You know, as as pupils move through S1, S2, S3, and S4, um, so perhaps there could be something in S2, S3, S4 that's perhaps a little bit broader, a little bit less focused on performance outcomes and developing performance in that kind of performative or elite way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, as I say, I'll go back to my, my main point. I think that who, who's got control in the classroom? Well, the teacher has control. So I would encourage, and the work that I've done certainly looks more at what teachers are doing and how can they best support the needs of their young people in terms of health and well-being. Yeah, I think you made a good point about, you know, PE trying to be a place for everyone and not just uh, performance uh, goals. Because uh, obviously there's a lot of pupils go to clubs and they're able to then showcase that in school. Um, but I think there needs to be two pathways, one which looks at uh, certification and one that maybe develops a leadership that, can, that they can then take into further higher education. Or Absolutely. Do, do I mean, I further than that, I mean, I, I'm stuck because I was thinking about this today. I can think of lots of pathways. So you can look at leadership, you could look mm-hmm. at aesthetic experiences, you could look at critical issues in physical education. Um, so there's lots of pathways, but I, again, I would be worried that you started to... Um, uh, guide pupils on those pathways too early. Uh, I was examining a PhD last year and it was set in England and one of the things that she, this PhD student found was that um, there's actually less guidance in the English curriculum than there is in Scotland which actually opens, opens the curriculum up a little bit more to different interpretations which you could argue is a strength and a weakness but if you look at it from a sort of weakness perspective what these schools were doing is they were actually setting pupils really early on in um, secondary school according to ability. And then once they were set according to ability, they would give one group of pupils a curriculum that guided them towards GCSE and A-level, and they would give the other set of pupils a different curriculum. And what that meant was that those young people who got put in the bottom set they were never ever going to have that opportunity to do A-level because they got a different curriculum. They were learning different stuff. They weren't challenged in the same way. Um, And so it was really exclusive and not inclusive at all. So I would worry that if you, you know, this is the dilemma, you you do want to provide choice and pathways, absolutely. And you do want to have, in my opinion, a a broad curriculum, a broad physical education experience but at what point do you start to stream and guide and set? And there can be some issues with that as well. Yeah, definitely. Part of my development this year is to look at the Higgios 4 uh, quality indicator 2.2 for curriculum development. So I'm actually planning this just now with my principal teacher and looking at different pathways. And, you know, we were speaking about it the other day there. And we're just trying to come up with courses, almost within courses, like so having a, an award that they can achieve through National 5. Um, yeah. So maybe not getting their portfolio, but maybe getting a performance march, maybe yeah. plus plus maybe a national progression award yeah. in football yeah. that you can then take into their, if they want to do coaching or something. So it's trying to be clever that way, I think, as yeah. well. I mean, part of the issue is really the national qualification. 
and again, I'm not taking any credit for this, Malcolm Thorburn, really, this is his field and he's a brilliant thinker in this area. Um, but if you want to change what, if you want to change what leads up to the national qualifications, then you have to change the national qualifications. What happens in some schools is it becomes quite narrow because again, teachers are held accountable for their performance in national qualifications. So rightly, they devote quite a bit of time to, to this. Um, but if you want to change that, you need to not just have one hire. Why, you know, PE is a broad subject. Can we, is there scope? And I'm just, this is blue skies thinking, ivory tower thinking. Could we have other hires in PE that were, that were not just about performance? So could we have, yes, let's have a higher performance that, similar to what we currently have, where it's about understanding really the scientific principles of sports performance and learning. But could there be um, another hire that's about leadership? Uh, could there be another hire that's about critical issues in physical education around, for example, gender, inclusion, LGBTQ? You know, the sky's the limit. Yeah, and definitely. once you change that end point, then what comes before it will have to change. Yeah, you want, if you want a broader curriculum, have a broader endpoint. I don't know. I don't think the PE course suits every pupil. I mean, it's okay. It's I enjoy teaching it, but sometimes it can be a bit of a onerous task trying to get them all to understand all the factors and stuff. But it's not really relevant to life. I don't think um, it's not transferable for some of the knowledge that they gain. Um, but that's just my opinion, anyway. But. Yeah, for some yeah, children it will be though, so for some it will. So I can yeah, see how understanding some of the sort of principles of, of, of you know, learning and developing motor skills and movements and, and so on. If you're coming to be a PE teacher or you're going into coaching, you know, they're pretty relevant. But that's just one perspective, that's just one pathway. Yeah, you know. I know. Or sports science, if you wanted to do a degree in sports science, then I think it, it's quite a useful starting point. Yeah, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's it just narrows things a little bit, which yeah. you could argue we need that as well. So there's two sides to every argument, which I get. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some stuff that they can take from it, like the training diary and different approaches to develop performance if they want to go down the coaching or fitness route. Yeah. Um, but just say it's trying to cater for everyone. So, Shelley, you kind of spoke there about the, the kind of importance PE has in the social and emotional development of the, the young people that we teach. Could you tell us a little bit more about your research in the, the area of health and wellbeing? Yeah, of course. Um, so I've done a wee bit now over the last sort of 10 years, I think. Um, and I started off uh, really when Curriculum for Excellence was first coming out, um, I was quite interested to know about the process of curriculum development and how PE came to be positioned, so how health and wellbeing uh, came to be so central within this curriculum and how PE came to be part of the health and wellbeing document, so um, our curriculum. So I did a bit of research that spoke to some people who were involved in the curriculum making process and I spoke to some teachers about how they felt about the curriculum process and their involvement and their understanding. And that flagged up quite a few interesting things. So um, that flagged up uh, that health and well-being. So the, so the discourses surrounding why health and well-being became part of the P curriculum were largely linked to discourses of public health around physical inactivity and the obesity epidemic and getting kids more active and more healthy in that sense. So that was interesting. Um, what was also interesting was that really what PE teachers had to work with in the early days were the experiences and outcomes. And they didn't seem to be that different really from the five to 14 um, uh, guidelines in terms of what teachers should be doing. So that it was quite challenging. This is what I found from my research. It was quite challenging for teachers because on the one hand, they were repositioned. They weren't in the expressive arts curriculum anymore. They were repositioned within health and wellbeing. So you might expect there to be some change in what they're doing. But on the other hand, the E's and O's didn't really look that different to what a lot of teachers were currently doing. So was it change or no change? And what some teachers spoke to me about is they thought more of a mapping exercise was they would just map the E's and O's onto what they were currently doing. And so that really it didn't make a big difference to what they were doing. 
I think I should add, I think that's changed since the introduction of the cells and the benchmarks. I think you know, there has been a shift, which I can talk about later if you like. Um, but at the time when I spoke to teachers, I asked them, you know, what do they think their role is in terms of the health and wellbeing curriculum? And many of them really saw PE as kind of the thing that would do the physical side of, the, of health. So it was about getting kids physically active, getting them moving, and they, did, they saw that alignment between uh, fit, the, you know, um, health and well-being and the physical area of health. So that's what teachers said. We also did some work with students, and students were a bit different actually, which is quite interesting. Students were much more critical of the role of PE in solely promoting uh, or largely promoting physical health. Um, PE students saw that this was a bit narrow, um, that was a bit limited and that it didn't take into account really young people's context and what health meant to them and their context in terms of what social resources do they have, what economic resources do they have, um, what family resources do they have, so what are the kind of contextual factors that might support their engagement in physical activity and, and physical health. So they were quite critical of that. Um, they thought that health should be viewed much more broadly. And they were also critical because they thought that with a focus on physical health, um, there might be um, the risk of labelling those children who couldn't engage or couldn't have good physical health um, labelling them, instilling feelings of guilt or shame or stigma um, because when we think about physical health we think about the body and what the body looks like and engaging in physical activities in order to produce a certain body. So PE students were really critical and they talked a lot about this idea about the body and healthism and, and neoliberalism and so on. But what was even more interesting about that was although they could talk in a critical way, so they could express themselves critically. When we asked them about how they would teach health in PE, they didn't know how to translate that critical view into critical teaching. So they still talked about things like, oh, we could do circuits, we could go jogging, we could do park runs, we could do um, fitness testing, that kind of thing. So although they spoke about health in a broad sense and in a critical way, when it came to their actual practice, again, they were quite limited in terms of, of, um, of what they thought they could do or they would do. So that was quite interesting. Yeah. So don't know, that, that was just in the very early stages of um, my research in this area, as I say, just really when the experience, um, curriculum for excellence came, came out and PE shifted from expressive arts to health and wellbeing. Um, I've yeah. done a bit, sorry, I don't know if you've got any... No, I was going to say it's, it's um, you made a good point. It's like everyone's got a, a different perception of what health and kind of health and well-being is, and like I've listened to TED talks and and it, like surrounding like what like happiness and ultimately like happiness to me happiness is the goal of health and well-being. Like if you're happy and like out with the physical side of it, like your physical health, like that is such a big part to play in it. And for that, I think it was all to do with social connection like how important social yeah. connection is to, to health and well-being as well. And if you can create environments like that where the pupils are happy and they're getting that social connection and like I think that's got a lot to say for it as well. Yeah. As opposed to just the physical side, like you were saying, like circuits and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think yeah, it's much absolutely. more than that. And I think the fact that you've sort of taken this idea of happiness, but you've not just left it there, but you've gone back to say, well, it's about how we achieve that. And actually, so just being happy is kind of, well, how do we do that? But actually thinking about it in terms of social connectedness from a learning perspective, that actually says a lot more, I think, in terms mm. of not just being happy, but learning about how to socially connect and the other yeah. um, kind of positive impact of, of that kind of experience. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what we're um, involved in a project just now where it's like using these different teaching strategies to ultimately boost teacher confidence and we're doing like I was doing an act like an active learning strategy where the pupils had to like kind of write down a direction and get to a place in the school and just setting up wee tasks like that where they are kind of forced to connect in different ways like as opposed to just sitting down in a classroom and writing from the board in a yeah. theory lesson or and I think that really helps like your kind of teaching strategy that you use can help 
help towards that, not just within like your practical PE lessons, but again, like within your PAP lesson, I suppose mm -hmm. that can translate into other subjects as well, um, just getting them socially connecting in different ways. Yeah, and that's, that's where I sort of went to next. So I did a project where I looked at, so I was interested, so I knew that teachers, the teachers I spoke to weren't quite sure how to change what they were doing to teach health and well-being. And the students that I spoke to didn't really know what to do either. And, and I didn't know what to do. You know, this was all as new to me as it was to anybody else. And my interest in this area was really to develop my own understanding as much as it was to do anything else. And so the, one of the steps I took was I actually, first of all, went to try to understand, as you've talked about there, young children's experiences of PE within health and wellbeing context. So what were their positive experiences and what were the negative experiences? And what I found was that they had both, uh, but they're uh, less positive. So their negative experiences were related to things like feeling like they didn't have any control over their own learning, um, feeling like they weren't improving with their learning. So they, they didn't feel like their competence was improving. So they had low perception of competence. Some pupils had negative experiences because they felt they weren't being challenged enough. And actually there were some gender issues that caused negative experiences as well, where girls and boys, girls in particular, felt like the expectations placed on them were different. The way the teacher taught them was a bit different. And the choices they had, uh, they were given were, were different, which actually limited what they could do and how, how they felt, to the extent to which they felt they belonged in that PE space. So understanding pupils' perspectives was really helpful for me to think, well, if these are the negative experiences and these are the, the sort of teacher behaviours they're associated with, what are the teacher behaviours that would be associated with more positive experiences? Um, and so round about that time, that's when Paul Wright came over from uh, the University of Northern Illinois in Chicago. And he, he had read some of my work around health and well-being, around trying to promote positive health and well-being and PE and he got in touch with me and said you know I think there's some alignment between our work can I come over and talk to you so he came over for a visit and he said listen I've got this sabbatical it's a six-month sabbatical and um, why don't I come to Edinburgh and we could do some work together so he came over then for six months and he introduced me to teaching personal and social responsibility um, which is really interesting and just came at the right time for me as I was trying to grapple with how do teachers teach personal and social? How do teachers teach social and emotional learning within the health and well-being curriculum? And so he introduced T TPSR, and for me that that was a way of teaching that explicitly promotes social and emotional learning. Just as you were describing there, Lewis, you know the stuff that you're doing. It, it's you're actively trying to teach these skills. It's not just a byproduct, but it's a main lesson objective. And TPSR is about taking responsibility for yourself. So putting some effort into your work, um, demonstrating self-directed behaviours, goal setting, working by yourself. But it's also about taking responsibility for others. So that's respecting the rights and feelings of others, taking on board leadership roles, caring, helping others and so on. And what I liked about this model is it didn't completely change what PE teachers were doing. PE teachers would teach a normal everyday PE lesson, but would need to include some strategies, some explicit strategies, for example, modelling respectful behaviour, setting clear kind of behavioural expectations, um, encouraging positive social interactions, providing leadership opportunities, uh, letting pupils have an active role in assessment, and then thinking about learning not just in PE, but beyond the PE class as well. Um, so I just was fascinated by the, all of these ideas, and they seemed to tie in really nicely with what the pupils had said to me in the previous work that I had done, and also where the gaps were from the teachers and the students in the work that I had done there as well. So Paul came over and we did a we did a, a project in Edinburgh and we worked with a number of schools. And the aim of this project was really to understand how teachers understood social and emotional learning, um, what their actual practices were, and what the pupils' experiences were as well. And we sort of framed this with TP. So we 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 tried to analyse and investigate what they were doing based on what we knew about teaching for personal social responsibility. So we tried to align the two things. And what we found was that um, the teachers really valued social and emotional learning as part of their practice and as part of the curriculum. They felt that it was a good fit with their beliefs. It was a good fit with the PE curriculum. 
and they were very good when we looked at their practice they were really good at creating positive and safe safe learning environments and this was also recognized and appreciated by the children that they worked with um, but they saw the way they talked about social emotional learning was that it was more something that was implicit so it was naturally occurring and they did it anyway in their practice so the way they communicated with pupils, they tried to make pupils feel safe, like they could talk to them about anything. They tried to motivate them. And we saw evidence of if there was a behavioral issue in the lesson, um, the teachers would adopt restorative practice approaches so that these behavioral moments became teachable moments and young people could learn from them. So they were really good at kind of the implicit social and emotional learning side of things. But, but what was not so evident was the explicit approaches, again, Lewis, that I think you've talked about just before. So the things that you plan for. So explicit approaches like, you know, building into your, your lessons points where you clarify, reinforce and give feedback on expectations and behaviour. When you adopt empowering approaches such as giving leadership opportunities, um, problem solving opportunities, decision making, peer teaching, uh, management task, uh, involvement and assessment, and time to reflect on their own learning, their own behaviour, their own uh, respectful behaviour for themselves and towards others. Um, so there's some, so I think over the 10 years that I've been working in this area, I think that there's been a big shift on what teachers are doing and how they're doing. I think they're doing a great job. But the work that we've done here with Paul, and actually, um, Ishan Teroka and um, David Kirk at Strathclyde have done some work in this area as well and they, they see that there's some room for further improvements as well in this area um, so that that's something for the future to, to look to, to to kind of look at research that supports teachers to develop some or more of these um, empowering teaching strategies for um, social and emotional learning. Yeah so, so you kind of spoke there about the I, I suppose that kind of answered my next question then about steps that teachers can take and you spoke about those different models like the the tpsr model and stuff to to promote that kind of learning what then see i'm a teacher and i'm looking to develop that kind of social and emotional side of learning with my pupils but i'm kind of stuck for strategies or teaching models what support then do you think a teacher listening to this could could get to to learn how to teach the TPSR model, for example, because I know Clark and I went to uh, one of your twilight sessions, but then it's taking that knowledge from them, those sessions and trying to, and what, you ha what we had set up was quite good. I suppose we went back every, I can't remember how often it was, but it was periodically and we could go back and we gave feedback and stuff. How then do you think a teacher could get support if they wanted to try something like that, if they were listening just now, to make sure they were kind of doing it right or effectively, I guess? So, I don't think they have to worry about doing it right or effectively to start off with would be the first thing. Um, I think that, I mean, I'll be able to sort of draw from what I know about practitioner inquiry here. I think that just to read a book or just to go on a course is probably not enough. And I know I've worked quite closely with two teachers uh, and I've probably spoken to you about this already, but I've worked quite closely with two teachers who did this, who they actually came along to one of Paul's. So when Paul was over for his uh, six month sabbatical, we ran a couple of twilight sessions where he led the session. And these two teachers that I've worked with, they came along to this and they were like, OK, this makes sense. I've been wondering how I do this. Now you've shown me how I do this. I'm going to give this a go. But it wasn't enough just to attend that session. So what one of the teachers did is he was also doing a master's degree and as part of his master's, he had to do a practitioner inquiry. So it was quite a, for I'm hesitant to use this word because it makes it sound like it's, you know, um, perhaps not within the reach of some people purely because of time constraints. But um, he had to do a formal piece of work for this and he, he set out a rationale for what he was doing. He had some questions he wanted to answer. And he planned the methods that he would use to, you know, to, to make those changes to his practice. So, for example, there's a, a, a teacher behaviour checklist that you can go through to help to um, reflect on your own practice about the strategies that you're using. And what he did is he invited one of these colleagues into his lessons with this checklist to watch him and match it to this checklist. And then they would have a professional learning discussion afterwards. 
so that they could talk about what he was doing, um, how did it feel, how effective was it, what was the response from the learners. And they did that over a series of lessons where he was just sort of taking small steps, trying different things, but building up his knowledge, his experience and his confidence trying these different, um, these different approaches. But he had to put a bit of work into it. So he had to do a bit of reading. He had to get some of his colleagues on board. He had to gather some data, not lots, but some data. He had to reflect on that and do some analysis and then kind of bring it all to a conclusion as well. And at the end of, I think he did it for two terms and still, um, still really draws from TPSR now in his own practice, but not in such a formalized way, I don't think. But he, you know, that was quite a challenging process for him. And there was a bit of effort involved in that. I think um, doing it as part of a group as well also holds you accountable and it makes you more inclined to, to put the work in. Because it's, it's easier to do it as part of a group is what I'm trying to say rather than trying to do that on your own. So yeah. I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah. yeah. So there's lots of positive reasons for doing it as a group, definitely. Just getting some peer support, just sharing some ideas and getting them to see things that you don't see. So another thing I did with a different teacher... So this was, um, this teacher had been to the session and said, Shirley, I want to try this. And I said, can I come and watch you? Because I had read the books, I had been on the courses, but I had never seen it in action before. So for a term, I went every Wednesday to see him teach this class and I would sit and take notes. And I did it initially for my own learning as much as for his learning. But we, we, we ended up talking so much about what he was doing. We, ha- we ended up doing a lot of the planning together for the next session um, we had a lot of really rich data came out of both my obs- observations and our discussions and reflections that we used that for his learning as well. And, um, you know, just as you said, without me necessarily being there, he might not have done that. But also, I saw things that he didn't see. Because you know when you're standing in front of a class, there's lots of, th- you're juggling and spinning lots of plates. I'm sitting on a bench at the side watching. I'm not really juggling you know spinning as many plates I can see things that he doesn't see and also because I come from a different perspective I I kind of look at the lesson with a different set of lenses on and so that collaborative work brought two different perspectives that really enhanced his learning and my learning so I got I got the practitioner's perspective and he got the observer's perspective and when you brought those two together we actually both learned loads and loads from that so you know definitely working as a team definitely taking some small steps you don't have to gather screeds and screeds of data it can be an informal professional learning conversation at the end of a lesson highlighting some key points and then using that to inform your next session I mean it doesn't have to be that onerous but you have to put a bit into it it has to be ongoing um, but as you said it's, it's easier if you do it as a team definitely Yes, but just taking those, just taking action on it, isn't it? Taking action on yeah. it, be perfect, and then just making it that wee bit better each yeah. time you try it. Yeah. So, no, I think that's some really valuable information there. Yeah, I think it's like having that open approach, isn't it, to to people coming into your class as well, and um, conducting learning walks are really, really important for improving practice for everyone. Absolutely, um, absolutely, and that's you have, and that's where it is challenging for teachers. It's challenging because who likes to be observed? It's really hard. Um, and also it's both of the teachers I worked with talked about feeling like a probationary teacher again. And these were two experienced teachers because you will make mistakes. It will feel uncomfortable and you will feel like you're not. I mean, a couple of times I had one of the teachers on the phone saying, I don't know if I can do it anymore because I don't think it's working. But then we tried to unpack why he thought that. And then so we, we, we identified the problems and then we looked for ways of solving those problems. So again, doing it, with some other people I think is really really helpful um, and there was something else I was going to say there but it's, I've lost it at the moment. Yeah last year we went on learning walks in science um, so we went to watch a science teacher, I went to watch two science teachers and then two science teachers came to watch a PE department as well outside teaching but it was fascinating, fascinating yeah. to learn some strategies in the classroom yeah. uh, rather the than just in gym hall. And the more you observe the easier it gets and as long as you talk to the people observing and you, you, you create this really positive culture to make sure this is about your learning, this is not about being critical. And the other thing, and I'm not an expert on this, so I don't really want to talk about it too much, but we have a group of uh, 
academics at the University of Edinburgh who are doing quite a lot of work around lesson study at the moment. And I believe lesson study is very much about working collaboratively. And it's very much not about the teacher being observed, but about the lesson being observed. So what are the responses? What learning is taking place? What are the responses of the children? And using that to, um, to create di- or instigate dialogue around how we can then move forwards. So I think there's ways around that notion, you know, if you're, if you're a bit panicky about being observed, you're, you're not comfortable, there are ways around it as well. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if we could do that, Liz. I mean, you could video call each other and observe each other through Zoom. <laughs> there you go, it's a first for everything. Give it a go there you and go. I know, I know, that's how we might need to go down the virtual route, considering the current restrictions. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Um, so lastly then, Shirley, in your opinion, what makes a high quality teacher? Um, a high quality teacher. Put you on the spot there. Yeah, no, I think, I don't think it's necessarily about a set of skills. I think it's about um, a disposition, if you like. I think those teachers who you might describe as high quality, they are, oh, this is my opinion. These are the people that I've worked with. They are open, they're honest, they're willing to learn, they're willing to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, and they work in teams, they collaborate, they don't just go off on their own and, and uh, you know, there, there might be exceptions to that, I don't know, but those teachers who I, I, I would describe as quality, who I have my, the utmost respect for, are teachers who have those characteristics. So that that's probably my response yeah. to that question. Nice. Um, when you were rhyming off there, I was thinking of the growth mindset there. That's just sort of qualities and characteristics yeah. of someone with a growth yeah. mindset. There. It's about being a learner. It's about yeah. being a learner. You know, learning is the journey. It's not that end point because really there is no end point. It's about the journey. And yeah, I definitely. think new teachers embrace that. And, you know, their pathway in terms of what they believe and how they teach changes over time. And I think that's a good thing, really. About the process, not the, uh, the journey, not the destination. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I believe that. So... Well, that rounds us off nicely for the, the main part then, Shirley. So each week we have a, a guest on the podcast. We like to finish with a, a wee kind of quick fire round of three. So just for a wee bit of fun, three nice quick questions for you. So number one, if you could have a giant billboard in your hometown or anywhere, what would it say on it? Well, I have two answers. Am I allowed, even though it's a speed limit? Yeah. Even though it's um, quick fire? Go for it. So in my village, it's meant to be 40 miles an hour, but they're always speed, so we'd be like, keep to the speed limit. But really, that would be one. Um, but I, I quite like this idea of never judge a book by its cover. I think that I, I, I'm very much a believer that don't make assumptions about people. Get to know them. Get to understand them. Where are they from? Uh, what's, their, what's their history? What's their story? And you know, make an appropriate decision after that. So never judge a book by its cover. That that'll do. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I think I think first impressions are all, always wrong. I always think sometimes yeah. that's an interesting point. Yeah, I get to know first. Right. So number two, then, what books or what book or books have had the greatest influence on your life? So there is a really easy answer to this, and that is none. <laughs> but I can sort of soften that answer a little bit. Um, as a child, I didn't read a lot. I was too busy out doing stuff. Uh, but as an adult, I got into reading. And I would say the, the work of Irvin Welsh probably got me into um, reading as an adult. And I do like to, I, I like reading Scottish text. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And final one then, what advice would you give to a student teacher about to enter the working world or what advice do you feel they should ignore? So I'm going to take a really positive approach here and not talk about what they should ignore. Uh, What advice? Be inquisitive. Ask loads of questions. Be open to learning new things. And that, just as you'd said there, learning is the journey, not the destination. And embrace that philosophy. That would be my advice. Great advice. Here. Wow, sounds good. That, um, that finishes off nicely. So thanks again, Shirley, for agreeing to do this with us today. And we hope this helps the current teachers across the country and the next generation of student teachers coming through.
Well, thank you very much for having me. Because <laughs> it's not often I get a chance to talk about these things. People tend to fall asleep in my house when I start to talk about these things. So. No, that was good. That was very, um, I really, really enjoyed that. So thanks again for giving us your time tonight and doing that with us. It was great. Okay, well, some thanks. interesting points. Thanks very much, Shirley. It was good to catch up with you. I'm sure yeah, we'll be up one of your uh, one of your twilights if you're having any more of them coming up. Well, I hope so. There'll be so, definitely some things in the pipeline, so watch this space. As always, each week we have our key takeaway messages from both the hosts. So a very interesting episode there with Shirley Gray talking about all things PE and her research in the area of PE and health and wellbeing um, as well. So what was your key takeaway messages from today's episode? Uh, my key takeaway message would be kind of, kind of taking, taking ourselves back to question number three was when we talked, spoke about uh, curriculum development and how health and wellbeing has to be at the centre of, of, of our planning and shape the needs uh, of all the of the of all the young people, so having different pathways for the pupils to opt into and, and progress through the BGE and also in, in the senior phase. For me, the PE course, certainly the portfolio and the higher course, is very uh, applicable to pupils who take part in probably a sport or activity outside school. So it's all about a training diet, isn't it? It's all about evaluating. It's a cycle of analysis, so it's very elitist, I would say. So maybe having a, another option in there would be a good idea. It's maybe more focused on well-being and leadership. Uh, I think that was a good point that, that Shirley made there, and it's something I'm now thinking about myself in terms of the curriculum development that's happening in my school. So that would be something that I, I would take away from it, and hopefully others listening would be able to take away as well. Obviously, it's SQA that designed the course, so it's, it's, it's above us, but even if anyone from there from there is listening, then... Um, it might be something that could be changed in the future. Um, she she was shall I be speaking about maybe having an extra national course, national five or higher course that isn't about training programs and all about kind of performance development and performance goals. Could it be something in relation to just general health and wellbeing and uh, mental health, or impact of the social media, um, the importance of having a sense of belonging in school and how they can achieve that and lots of barriers. So, no, plenty to think about moving forward, Mr. Clare. But uh, as always, it was a a great a great uh, a great chat tonight with with Shirley speaking about you know physical health and the role of teachers in PE. And she said right at the start, actually, it's not just about PE teachers; it's the role of every teacher in the school is to promote positive health and well-being. So, what was your key takeaway message, mate? Nicely summed up there, Mr. Burrow. My key takeaway message then, I guess, would be. When asked Shirley about the kind of steps teachers could take to improve health and well-being in their school, and she was kind of speaking about different models and stuff that she had researched, and it was about the bit we asked what support the, the teachers could use because it's all fine and well going to like a twilight session or doing a CPD thing and learning about these new teaching models, but it's trying to take action and implement it after learning about it is the kind of difficult bit. And I thought it's interesting um, how she's saying the importance of working as as a group to hold each other kind of accountable and make sure you're bringing stuff back to the table if you are doing like a, a mini research project or like a, a practitioner inquiry because that ultimately kind of forces you to to change what you're doing or try something new and it's like the thing that we're involved in just now it's we're trying these new strategies with our, our classes and and theory-based lessons and then we're coming back and we're having a little zoom call and then we're discussing it and it's it's really it keeps it interesting for you. It allows you to take, it makes you take action on um, changing your practice and ultimately making you kind of a better teacher. I would say. Um, and if you've got more tools in your toolbox, then you're going to be a better. Get, the, the kids are going to learn better from it as well. So it's a win-win. And yeah, I think the key message there was um, working as part of a group. It kind of makes you more inclined to, to put the effort in. Whereas if you were just left to your own devices, you might just always resort back to the path of least resistance and not um, try out these new strategies or teaching models as we can discuss there. So I think that's very, very important and it's something that we can we can all do, just get involved in a, a mini group and kind of share ideas with each other. Definitely. I think hopefully our uh, project, just me and you, like virtually, we could maybe get involved in a wee virtual lesson. I can shadow you in your lesson. 
not 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 obviously physically because of the coronavirus, but that'd be good to yeah, they that. Good for that. Well, I'm just going to say the shadow, my pal. <laughs> no, I think I think it'd be worthwhile though to see. You know, Shirley said when you when you take a class, there's a lot of plates spinning. I think if you get into your class, there'd be a lot of crashing around, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen me spin a plate. I'm absolutely pro at spinning plates. I thought you were just good at spinning basketballs, mate. But anyway, uh, plates and I can spin basketballs on top of plates. <laughs> well, well, listen, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> be a lot of bouncing and breaking. As always, if you see it on Instagram at a wee bit of everything podcast or Twitter at Burrow underscore Mister or Cleland Lewis ninety four, we'd be awfully grateful if you could give us a wee share or a retweet, as this helps us get the podcast out there so that others can listen to this content as well. Until next time, we hope you all have a fantastic week. Take care. <laughs>